So welcome everyone to another episode, Daybreak Crypto. Swiss here with Jake. We have two really interesting articles today. The first one up, VC unbundling via DAOs. So this is a article talking about the different generations of DAOs that have come into play over the past, I think, year or two. Um, the first generation, so, so just to begin, it kind of starts with this idea that the capital has been abundant but valuable services have not been abundant. And so for a long time, the, the venture capital, the different investors, they give you a lot of lip service as a founder saying they're gonna help you do this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, many, many of them come in, put the money in, don't really do a lot for you after the fact. So what this premise is saying, let's unbundle, that value prop with DAOs. And so I really liked the way they walk through the, the first, second, and now the third generation of DAOs. First generation being investment DAOs. They came up, it's a way to secure funding, but it hasn't displaced that value proposition at all because the, the investment DAOs still rely upon the signal that the reputation sends of those investors who are involved with that DAO. Second generation incubation DAOs, this has been really community focused. So if an ecosystem starts up an incubation DAO to fund different projects that are building on their eco, still very reliant on the signal it sends. The same as if a project wins a grant, it sends a big signal to other investors that, hey, this is a legitimate project. And so the first, second generation hasn't really done anything to, to, to displace the VC paradigm where it's all signal based on reputation. And so the third generation is saying, look, this is the real unbundling, the service DAO. The people who have a service DAO will come in to a project, they have capital, they can write you a check, but then they can actually do a lot for you as well. So they can come on and help you with your engineering, they can come on and help you do design, do your legal, do research, tokenomics design, all of these different things. And so this really spoke to me because I think it's it's uh, it highlights the competitive nature to win deal flow is not gonna get any easier. And so for those who are willing to roll up their sleeves and actually put some sweat into it beyond just write a check, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good for you. So. I'll just kind of pause there because I think mm -hmm. that was really the, the TLDR of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is um, it almost feels like a logical evolution because over the last couple of years and the point I was making earlier was we might be seeing this unwind a bit, but I'm definitely not saying that because we've um, like the proliferation of available capital to uh, these kinds of projects, there's so much now that just showing up and saying, hey, I got a check. It's like, yeah, you and everyone else, man. Um, so being able to differentiate yourself as an investor by saying, like, look, you can go, you can let some VC take their 20% pound of flesh and then hope for the best, or you can uh, reorganize how you uh, trade off ownership in your nascent uh, project in exchange for explicit services from proven DAOs that can provide those is a, 
I mean, if I was putting myself in the position of someone creating one of these projects, that'd be a much better proposition for me because now the, the price you're paying makes sense because what you're getting in return is, well, you can feel much more confident in that. Yeah, and I think a big part of this as well is is highlighting, look, VCs and these other early gen DAOs taking 10% of the company in exchange for capital. This is, they're making their claim because this is a bit of a an advertisement for this particular service DAO. But they're making the claim, look, we'll come in and ask for like 1% of the company instead of 10%. I don't know the specifics on what that looks like, because in my experience, you often have consultants who maybe write a seed check for a startup, but then they end up billing the startup in any way. And so they, they get paid, they, they get their money back, but then they end up with some equity. So I don't know if that's what's going on here. If like, I would love to see a actual agreement or what these these terms actually look like, but I do think this is going to increase a lot because it's just this, this idea of competition increasing. Um, and there was a, there was a really great tweet I saw that talked about, look, even if you have a bunch of money in your fund, if you're a VC partner, if you want that, you have to do a capital call. Nobody wants to do a capital call right now because everything's tanking. So, I mean, Yes, capital is abundant, but people have to be really ready to defend why are you doing a capital call in conditions like this. So mm -hmm. it's really interesting yeah. to see, and I think it's only going to intensify. Yeah, and maybe for those of us listening that maybe aren't aware of what you know what, what these projects could expect in return, like you might be thinking, like, well, you're the startup, aren't you doing the work? Well, you know, you might start up something that where you're, you know, you, you have a good idea and maybe you have a developer and maybe even have a marketing person. But uh, the article lists a number of different functions. You have talent, design, the product, marketing, research, economics, tokenomics, engineering, community building, business development, regulatory guidance, the legal stuff and the domain experience. Um, that, that is a large breadth of things that you're going to have to address if you want to create a successful project and the idea that you're just going to come to the table as a founder and build out a team that's just going to be ready to go to address all that um it's just unrealistic so so finding investors that um can help you there while also giving up some some allocation some ownership um is that's kind of the whole upshot of of uh a lot of venture capital and um when you're at such an early stage so um, yeah I would just add one more comment to that, and that's um, this is particularly relevant for hot deals. So if, if you're a, a hot startup and you have people begging to put money in, it's kind of like, well, what can you do for me? And so it's going to be these kind of value offerings who, who can who can bring the service in aside, uh, alongside the money that's going to win the deal. So mm -hmm. um, that's not going that's not going to decrease in my opinion, but that said, I mean, that I think pretty much covers this topic. I know you've got a, yeah. you've got a pretty, pretty lengthy one here. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I have one from uh, JP Koning, who is a great Twitter follow. He's a uh, writer, uh, does a lot of different writing for different companies, but uh, Coindesk is, is one. And uh, he wrote up uh, an opinion piece talking about an IMF paper that looked at the correlations between crypto adoption in countries and their levels of corruption. And what he said was that the IMF's conclusion was not just one of correlation, but they also saw uh, causation. Their conclusion was more or less the reason you see 
crypto adoption <clears throat> and high rates of corruption is because the use of crypto is allowing these um, these uh, leaders of these countries that are very corrupt to be more corrupt. And he thinks that gets it uh, in reverse. He thinks that's because that's being used as justification to say, hey, if we just, the IMF is saying, if we just uh, enact regulation, we can curb a lot of this corruption. And <clears throat> basically he sees that as just an entirely backwards conclusion. So it's gonna be an ineffective solution. Uh, what he invokes is the book Why Nations Fail, which is a great book, and I will definitely plug it. But the conclusion, the, the upshot of that book is that countries that have their shit together are those with effective economic and political institutions. Uh, countries that don't, countries that might be a lot more susceptible to corruption are often those that are run by regimes that uh, have built extractive political and economic institutions. These, uh, these are so the idea that like regulating crypto will not change this underlying character of these extractive institutions and these corrupt regimes. Uh, the reason that you see these high rates of crypto adoption in these undeveloped nations where elites rig the rules, it's not because the elites are dealing in crypto bribes, but it's because more so the suffering masses see crypto as a form of escape. And he illustrates two different ideas. Um, of how these masses use crypto as escape. The first one is probably the one that I think a lot of crypto believers and advocates would like to hold up as the norm. And it's uh, crypto as redemption. The citizens in these corrupt countries are using crypto as a hack around extractive institutions that subjugate them. Cuba is a good example because they're heavily reliant on remittances from abroad. Um, and then when the foreign nationals send money back to their relatives in Cuba, oftentimes the Cuban regime takes a cut, like five to 10%, but crypto allows them to get around that cut. And then even when, for instance, in 2020, when the US put in sanctions and kind of shut down the remittance program, uh, crypto still provided a viable option to get money back to their relatives uh, on the island. And so that's a very uplifting idea of how crypto helps the masses in a corrupt regime. But more often than not, JP points to crypto as tragedy. And he, what this is, is that, uh, crypto has become a last gasp gamble for a lot of the desperate people in these very corrupt countries. Nigeria is the example invoked. Nigerians actually use crypto on a percentage basis more than any other country, but their citizens are cut off from any means of finding a better life. And it's why that some of the highest rates of Ponzi schemes, get rich quick schemes, and again, volatile crypto use. And so what Nigerians have done is they've turned to these Ponzi schemes at alarming rates these get rich quick schemes and crypto uh, uh, markets really as a way out, as a desperate way to get out of a country that has 33% unemployment. These volatile zero sum games allow them to kind of temporarily escape their lot in life. Uh, but in the end, it doesn't change the underlying character that this is a corrupt country that isn't built to let normal people work hard and get ahead. So I'm almost done, but really, the entire upshot is that if just because like crypto is not the cause of corruption, it's a deeply systemic one. Uh, so you can't treat the symptom and expect the underlying character to change. So I don't know. What did you think about the, the article? Yeah, that, that takeaway at the end there really was how I was feeling as I read this, because I think it's, it's a symptom and not a cause. Um, corruption is not happening because, because crypto adoption is increasing the corruption is going to happen. It might be, 
it might be more easily enabled because of uh, access to, to to certain chains and and uh, exchanges and things, but it's not it, it, it's not the cause. Okay, so um, just reading some of these examples, I'm just thinking, okay, these are, these are symptoms, not causes. But it it actually kind of hit me um, reading the the Nigeria statistics, like it's kind of rough um mm -hmm. to just think about like a level of desperation to to be so willing to to chase a ponzi um it, it's not a great dynamic that pairs with crypto because of all the ponzis mm -hmm. uh, so i really hope that there's there, there's a lot of teams that raise and people try to build uh to improve access to like DeFi yields for um lesser developed countries and i'm hoping that some of that actually pans out um obvious I, I think we all are but like sustainable yield you know um not not the thousand percent apys because those right. i don't think are sustainable but just ways that everyday people who really need better access are, are going to be able to participate in in like proof of stake earnings you know, mm -hmm. that, that's the kind of thing where I really hope we, we see that soon. Yeah. Well, I think we're really, broadly speaking, about three uh, categories of crypto. The first example that I talked about with Cuba was as, as payments. And I think of stable coins, like you just want to get the money in hand to this place as securely and just preserve the value of that funds as much as possible. That isn't like a get-rich-quick scheme. And then you have, like you said, you have these um, reliable sound protocols that are just trying to compound a reasonable reasonable amount of yield every year, maybe 10 to 15%. But when we talk about this crypto strategy, these, these, these like you said, uh, 100x opportunities, um, it's people who are already in these desperate situations are very susceptible um, to being given a story of, hey, you know, how would you like to... Uh, See your money multiplied ten thousand times over. Like this is this is the next. Like there's plenty of that ridiculous uh, pumping and artificial like marketing that goes on in this space. Like there's just a lot of shit that comes with uh, investing in crypto. And if if you're you know if you can take a nuanced perspective, it's you know you can you can kind of spot a lot of that stuff. But when you're just desperate, uh, you kind of you like. like if you're already involved in Ponzi schemes, then it's like, why not? Why not throw my money in? Yeah. And it's, you show somebody a price chart, you know, of a thousand X and you're, you, you tell them, Hey, all you had to do was put in a hundred, even 50 bucks. And, and that to, to, to many, many people would be a great outcome, you know, a hundred X of 50 bucks. I mean, that, that's, that's all that, that really it, it's predatory. And so, yeah. You, you have kind of this perfect instrument um, that can be used used for that kind of thing. And uh, it distracts from the real utility, like the real opportunity of, of sustainable and um, well, sustainable risk-taking and yield. So, cause that's there. So I hope we can, we can make it, but um, sobering article. <clears throat> man. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, man. Oh, man, I got a little cold. Uh, well, great. Well, hey, I appreciate you hopping on today. Uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of Daybreak Crypto, and we'll be back uh, tomorrow.